This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Emily Roger, host of the Boiling Point podcast. My co-host, Dave Vale, and I will bring you thoughtful discussions with leaders who are positively impacting our world. This is The Boiling Point, where leadership and inspiration meet. I invited the guest we're going to bring in, so I'll do my best to, to take the lead role. Um, Emily, you've been doing such a great job. You, you're very good at asking kind of like a thought-provoking question of me when the, in our, or generally in our preamble. I don't have one. What would be a good question for me to ask you? <laughs> well, it's interesting. You spoke about, um, as a, so our guest, as we speak about our guest, Laura, who is a a counselor, a clinical therapist, but so my nieces are here from Ottawa visiting. And in our conversation that you and I were having previous to that, you had asked me and, and mentioned how my mom is a therapist as well. And so I have like grown up that it is like talking about your feelings and talking about just therapy and, and different models and stuff like that is as normal in my family as it is talking about the weather. My two of my nieces who are 11 and 15, they're here. So they talk to grandma, my mom, about everything. And it is so funny how often they say just how lucky they are to have a grandma who was a therapist. And and the 11-year-old niece the other day, she was like, do you know, like people pay thousands of dollars for these conversations and we just get to have them. <laughs> it's like they are living such a life of privilege by having a, a grandmother as a therapist. I'm like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> like, well, and it sounds like they appreciate it. And, yeah. yeah. But you know, what's interesting, like a, a kind of connection for me is my mom, retired social worker, taught social work as well you know, to a degree would be parenting kind of through that lens of a social worker and, and also a strong feminist. And, you know, and, and so as a, a guy who loved playing hockey and, you know, growing up in the seventies and eighties, you know, you know, and nineties, and probably still now we can, we can talk to Laura about this when we bring her on here, you know, men don't typically talk about their feelings, but mom was always asking us and like before it was popular dressed in, you know, kind of pink and, and orange, all these colors that weren't traditionally yeah. kind of male. I think it was a great experience growing up that way. I mean, it just, you know, it, it's, it's certainly helped shaped who my brother and I are, I believe, and, uh, and how we show up. So that's interesting, interesting connection. Well, let's bring in our guest, Laura Gation. Come yeah. on. Hello. Hopefully. Hello. Laura, Laura. Hi, welcome to the Boiling Point. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So we we threw you a, a little bit of a curveball when we were talking before. We you said you commented after we threw you the curveball that you know oh it'd be nice someone will introduce me and we said well actually this is how we like to start we like the guests to introduce themselves. Apologize for that curveball, but I I think you'll do a better job than either of us will do. So so who's Laura Gation? Like anything in this journey, my uh, ability to kind of roll with stuff is always I'm always having to prove that. Yeah, I'm a frontline social worker turned passionate entrepreneur um, from Kingston Peninsula, New Brunswick, have a practice in St. John, and most recently founded a not-for-profit organization. 
that houses all the programs that we began under the practice. I'm a mom of three littles. I'm super passionate about social change and believing it's possible, I think is what sets me apart from other people when I talk to them. Of the confines of the system, we don't accept that. We've kind of created a different system that is working really well. And if you go back to maybe when you talk about creating a different system, what system were you part of that kind of, that I don't know, that when I, I remember you sharing the story with me and I was thinking, it would be hard to break free of some of the, you know, the, the things you're exposed to in terms of here's how you show up as a social worker or as a therapist, right? And you had to break free of a lot of those kind of ideas and, and, and that, that lens to look through. So maybe take listeners through that early journey to, you know, starting your business. I think every social worker is really passionate while they're in school. They care a lot about people. I know for myself, I was really excited to start to implement a lot of changes that I was learning in school and working from this structural approach of, you know, if we meet people's basic needs, we can build on that. And that's all part of meeting their mental health um, needs as well. But then when you graduate, you see that it's really actually hard to do what you want to do within the current systems that we have within government. I was working in the healthcare system. Social work itself, as it falls in the healthcare system, is very underfunded, misunderstood. We have a long way to go in establishing our role in that system. And as a frontline worker who, like there's no social workers in management or very little, I would advocate for clients' needs. I would see that a proactive approach was needed, but it seemed that no one thought it was possible. It was almost like, Laura... I know, I know the system is is hard to to work within, but but we have to do that. There's there's people that need help. And sure, there there is. I always felt like a concurrent approach would work a lot better where we met people where they're at right now, but we also could implement some more proactive strategies so that we weren't always fishing people out of water in crisis. Because I was the face. The social workers are often the face of people who are really, really struggling. And they're putting these social work positions in at the 11th hour when it's really, really hard to make sustainable change or help stabilize someone. And I just felt that this was very, this is a very basic concept of if we help people sooner, they're not in crisis and we can help them more sustainably. But it was very clear that that was not going to be possible to, to implement that approach within the current system. I didn't have the autonomy to do so. So I decided to embark on a journey of private instead. Also, I, I could see that your passion gets sucked out of you when you work in a system that is soul crushing. Everything you want to do and everything that you learn in university, you actually can't do it. So I figured that I could sit around complaining and struggling about you know the system that it is, it is very flawed, or I could do something about it. And I didn't know that I could do so much about it and as, as, as a collective with my team, how possible it is to make change. It's very possible. You do have to have like incredible fight in you. Luckily, I do. I'm a protester by nature. I was that child who, when my needs didn't get met, a lot of kids get quiet. I got louder. <laughs> so it's very natural for me if someone says you can't do something to be like, you watch me go. Like underestimate us, that's going to be fun. 
<laughs> and I think that that is what got us going for a little while was I was fresh out of that system, just being like, no, 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 no. Can no one see here? We need to take a different approach. This is not rocket science. Proactivity is not a word that is really spoken about in many systems. You know, it's more than just proactive care we need. We need to transform the culture around mental health being seen as health. So as we embarked on the journey, one lesson led to another. So you you go head, kind of hurtling headfirst into, I'll describe, I think it's entrepreneurship, right? With a, with a vision, with a mission to what you yep. want to support. And um, entrepreneurship's tough enough. But I, my sense from talking to you previously is that it was discouraged in many ways by, you know, maybe people in, in the social work community. It was kind of controversial is, is what I, the sense I got. I think it, it was discouraged because I think it's maybe seen that if you get stuck on the things you can't control, that you can't help anyone. Like there is truth in that we do need to help people that need help right now who are coming across our desks in, in these systems. I just felt that wasn't the only thing that could be done. We need, we need that, but then we need to help people in a more proactive way if we're ever going to get caught up. We, we needed to start swimming upstream is the best way I can describe it. And I think that that's discouraged because it's just not seen as something that you can do. Someone challenged me last week, like, you, you can't change, like, government funding models. And actually, you can. We, we have recently received government support for our programs. If you can create it and show that it's a need and it's well responded to, and it's actually supporting the government's efforts, they're going to support it. They, it, it was really um, a no brainer when you look at the data. So getting, getting started, you must've had some naysayers. You must've had some people that are discouraging what you were trying to accomplish. I, I would say initially to think like, there, there was some fear around like, well, are people going to um, have in, enough insurance? Is there going to be enough people out there? People are, you know, mental health is very stigmatized. And again, my brain went to, okay, we're going to see who we see in the moment. But as soon as I hired my first associate, that allowed me to really work on the macro stuff of work, like helping people understand what mental health is, why it needed to be addressed early on. Um, why a proactive approach was needed. So it was people on my team, I started building a team so that they could do the micro work. They could really see the clients that we were speaking to while I was working on the macro work behind the scenes. And there's always something. There's the the nonprofit only addresses the financial barriers. There's also stigma. There's also the, the lack of system navigation, the ease of it. It's really difficult to know where to go. Those are like the three big things. And I'm thinking there's probably some communities or some pockets that it's more stigmatized than others. What have you learned around, you know, making it a, a normal, viable um, opportunity to, to work on your, your mental health? That modeling is key. So we first learned that this was something we needed to work on as a practice when we opened up our free Friday counseling clinic the very first week, um, you know, spread the message far and wide and no one came. So my mind was saying like, you can make it free, you can make it easy and they're still not coming. 
this is what really highlighted for me that stigma is a big part of this. We need to address, you know, why, why is mental health important? Why would I want to talk to a counselor? I think the past mentality around it has been like, you go to counseling if you can justify the reason. Like if something really bad happened that, you know, no one could negate that you might need help for, then you went to counseling. And if you talk to people now, I, I often ask people like, do you go to a counselor? Like very common practice. I bring it up with people all the time. I really do want it to be as normal as going to a dentist. It is your health. It is, is health. And the more people that operate as such, they're modeling for other people that it's normal. So when people come here and they see people that they know in the waiting room, which I very much want, uh, we have a very public location. We're on one of the busiest roads in St. John. That's not by accident. I think I know it makes some people uncomfortable. They tell me, some of my clients tell me, I really try to park in the back. <laughs> <laughs> like, and I can validate that that is, that there is still that, um, you know, self-shame, self-stigma for struggling. But concurrently, we also help understand, and, and you're showing that by coming here, that if you're human, you struggle. There's no amount of privilege or anything that's going to make it so that you don't struggle at some point in your life. You you will if you're human. And we try to really work from a non-pathologizing lens, meaning that we're not fitting people into boxes on that if they qualify for a disorder of some kind, like um, adjustment disorder. I was just talking to someone about and they said, do you think it's adjustment disorder? Like they had just lost their spouse and their child, adult child had moved away. And I, I said, no, I think it's very normal and predictable that as a human adult, when you lose your partner and your child moves away, that you're going to struggle with some adjustment. <laughs> a, a pathologizing approach would say you have X and Y disorder. Our approach is that you're a normal human and you might need support getting through that period in your life. Mental health is a continuum and we go up and down it at different points in our life, where I think in the past it was like black or white. You're either messed up or you're not using other people's words like mm -hmm. or, you know, when people say, can you fix me or not? I think all of those thought like ways that we think about things are what led to a lot of stigma. Changing the way we talk about it and changing the way we approach things of like two things can be true at once. You can have a diagnosis and be mentally well, and you cannot have a diagnosis and be really mentally unwell. It's something that's going to fluctuate in our life. Lori, yeah, this like this stigma and this normalizing working with a therapist and that like we all have mental health, the same as like we all have physical health. We all have like, and I always think too around like, all of these things that we're taught in life of like, do you want to get your license? You go through driver's school and you're trained by someone you're trained for someone for your career yet. Like our core selves, like we're, we're not trained in and, and how do we just navigate life that yet alone, like all of these changes and all of these new situations and the, the normalizing the conversation that like, for me, it's more of a red flag when somebody hasn't seen a therapist <laughs> than, if, than, if they do, than if they do, you know, because it, it is that thing and like being willing to, to look at yourself and, and learning how to navigate life and different things that are thrown our way, the, the big T traumas and those little T traumas. 
the human experience, it's, it's messy. And there's nothing wrong with you if you're struggling. And if you can help people as part of a proactive way, this helps families. This changes generations. In the past, people would wait so long until they were deeply, deeply in distress before coming to talk to someone. I do see a huge, huge shift in the last few years. You know, I mentioned earlier my mom being a social worker and talking about feelings and all that stuff. There's still the programming you get around you from your peers, communities you're associated with. And a lot of, I think, as a man growing up or as a boy and then becoming a man, it was like you kind of stuffed those feelings down, right? You didn't really talk about them. And they would come out in weird ways, you know, like you're allowed to show it in aggression. That was kind of socially acceptable, especially if you played like hockey or whatever, whatever sport you played. But, you know, like emotions, like, ooh, geez. And so I'm thinking if I didn't grow up in that environment, it would be interesting to see, you know, kind of where I'd be at this stage. But despite even in growing up in that environment, so, I, so I'm wondering, uh, like, I, I believe that, you know, there's a that's a that's part of your focus is first responders and men know that, hey, this is a normal thing. Does that ring true for you? Have you, have you noticed that? Have you seen that? For sure. I always make a joke that, like, men are only allowed to express three emotions socially, like hungry, horny, and happy. Like, and those aren't even emotions, but that's like (laughs) what feels okay. That's what feels socially acceptable. Um, So yes, certainly there is, it's harder for men in general to express themselves. And I think it's often because they don't have models for that or when they see boys expressing themselves and they see that they get made fun of or, um, you know, these things are, there's a lot of implicit messages is what I would say. Not many parents are saying, oh, well, I I say this to my, like, or they, they would say, I don't say that to my son. I don't tell him it's not okay to express emotions, but we often do in a more subtle way. I even notice it in myself between how I parent my daughter and my son. It's just, it's programmed in all of us. It's like any sort of bias. We are products of the people that have been around us and the messaging that we've heard and the things that we've seen. If you've seen someone get harassed or beat up or made fun of for expressing their emotions, there's like a protective element in your brain that says, you're not going to do that Mm -hmm. because that's not going to be great. So it, it takes extra work. And and this is why I think that it's great when dads come to therapy, you're, you're doing such a service for your sons just by going yourself. Even if you never talk to your kids about what you're there talking about, you're just simply showing that it's okay, that it's part of health and emotions are okay. And if you hadn't have had that training, you'd probably be divorced. And I don't know, like, there's just a lot of I think we see more and more marriage breakdowns because of this. Yeah. You speak of the um, those subtle ways. I'm curious if you would be willing to give some examples of those in how you have noticed those subtle ways within yourself that you may parent. Because it's like, sometimes we just don't have that awareness of what it is that we're actually doing. Mm-hmm. I think I noticed I had less tolerance for his crying. He, he has a lot of meltdowns, let's say like he is on the autism spectrum. And so he's a little bit more challenging to help regulate anyways. But I just noticed a subtle difference where 
I was like asking him not to cry more so than my daughter when we were out and about or yeah, I'm a little bit hyper aware of it too, but you can see it in like books, um, like the Thomas, the train book family. Um, when they talk about the, the girl train, there was something about her being emotional or I don't have it right in front of me to give an example, but if you start looking for it, you will see that things are explained differently and, and the, the characters in books are explained differently. Um, another example is I would tell my daughters to be more careful, I think, than my son when doing things. Like if they were like playing rougher, climbing up a tree, I think, I don't know. I think I'm just like, no, no, be careful. But my son less so. Yeah. Interesting. I love that. And thank you for sharing that. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, 4Kids Flashback. 4Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at 4Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. In your um, practices in St. John and now in Fredericton, are clinical therapists mostly female or like how many males are getting into that profession and in, in your practice? Not many. No, they're very much, it's mostly female dominated for sure. We have one male out of 25 people. I'm not seeing many male applicants either. And even in my class, I think about my social work classes, there was one or two out of 45, let's say. And and do you find that there are males who uh, are requesting to work with male therapists or, or what have you noticed in that? Not a lot, a little bit, because we are always looking to diversify our team. Um, I do check in with our admin team on what are people asking for? What, what would they like to see? What complaints are you getting? But not too much. I don't know the exact ratio of our clients in terms of male, female, um, or identifying as such. Um, but it's pretty close to equal the last time I checked, but yeah, the odd time a male will ask to see a male. I think from a coaching perspective, there's, there's kind of been the same path, right? Like not everyone wants to admit at one point they're working with a coach and then all of a sudden it started flipping, 
little bit where people would talk about it and share in their organization and then other people, you know, and the fact that they're working with a coach, it's something that you just talk about openly, like as you, as you pointed out, when you meet someone, you, you know, or Emily, as you pointed out, like it's a red flag in someone that, you know, that doesn't. I've noticed that with coaching, there's been this shift and in some professional groups that were really reluctant, uh, you know, think of physicians and lawyers are, are now participating much higher rates because, well, actually, if I think about it, because there's a lot of female lawyers and female physicians that are probably, that might be part of it. But I would say kind of overall, there's just a more openness. So it seems like we're going in the right direction. You know, uh, I know they're different, they're different um, services, but I've just, that has been my experience. And it's nice to see, right? And it's just because then it's less of a, um, oh, I need a coach or, uh, you know, a therapist is more like, and I deserve one. Like, I, I should be working with someone. There's nothing wrong with you for getting one. I think it was like you had to admit that you weren't good at your job or that, you know, needing help was seen as a weakness. Like, that's actually seen as really attractive. And what what we want, like, increased self-awareness, this work, this idea that we're all works in progress, um, vulnerability. We are seeing a lot more of it and it's, there's less like threat. I think it used to feel like a threat before if you needed a coach or you needed a therapist, like what's wrong with you that you need that when it's like, oh, oh, nothing. Like, it's just that you're a human trying to navigate the messiness and that's actually really attractive and admirable and what we want in employees and our partners and our kids and that kind of thing. Things are less black and white now. And for me, I find it such a fascinating process, which is probably one of the reasons why I love the coaching world and and the the therapy world and counseling. And but it of just like how it provides that space for us to really get to know ourselves and to understand and be able to kind of break down and uncompartmentalize all those things of like years of compartmentalizing and understanding why we are the way that we are and then being able to learn different ways um of just of, of approaching things and then yeah to be able to kind of break that that generational um thing and, and then also be able to then share that with other people and what i have found interestingly enough through my time in coaching is that through the process of coaching where coaching is, is different from, um, from therapy, but that it's like, it almost gets people comfortable talking and maybe people who initially weren't comfortable talking or comfortable sharing or talking about their experiences or their feelings that like mm. the amount of people who I've worked with, who then they'll get to a certain place and they're like, gosh, maybe I should work with a therapist on this certain topic or, or I'll suggest of like, yeah, this is something, this is a big roadblock here. And like, what if you were to take what you know right now and then go work with the therapist on this, you and I keep working together still, but like, it's like, it's, it's uh, yeah, almost kind of um, making an area where it does feel a little bit more comfortable to be able to just, to speak freely. That's like reducing the shame around it. People are often not talking about the things that they're ashamed of or that they think mean something about them. Yeah. People make connections and out of fear and shame, they, they don't bring it up. And by talking about it, you're, you're doing a lot of work towards that just right away, just by speaking it out loud curious about you know what is your approach to leadership what are you learning about yourself 
as a leader. What you're doing, there, it's not like a, a franchise that you bought and it says, do this, then this, then this. There's, I'm guessing there's been a lot of trial and error and there's been a lot of ups and downs. I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> I'd say my biggest learning, it's any anything, any issue that we've had, I feel like is connected in some way to the leader's issue in some way. And then learning like the hardest part has been knowing how much of it is me with something that I need to work on, maybe a blind spot I have and how much of it is the, the person that like what, what's happening and just knowing like how much of that to own has been probably the greatest common thread among everything. But, oh my gosh. So I don't even know where to begin with the number of learnings. It's just how much is connected to my own issues, like wanting, not knowing what boundaries to have with people, wanting, I I love people. I love connection. I want to be close with everyone I work with. As we grew, that wasn't possible. Um, You're constantly, constantly making hard decisions that are in service of the clients, the business, and the team. You're, you're always trying to weigh all three of those needs, competing demands. You try to be as fair as possible. And I learned that it is like simply not possible to, to have everyone be okay with what you've decided. It, like it feels fair, fair from my perspective, weight everyone's you know position on it. And you just have to be okay with not pleasing everyone. And that was hard. That was, I didn't realize how hard that would be for me. You have to always be the bigger person. It sounds like, it seems like, like when you're the leader, like if you're upset, you still have to model how you want people to act. You, you have to, you know, be the bigger person. I don't know how you say that correctly, but it just feels like, like it doesn't really matter exactly what's going on for you. It's your job. Same as parenting to like really manage your own reaction to other people's reactions constantly self-soothe, co-regulate, that kind of thing. And that's tough. So there's how you're leading and then there's what the business requires. I'm thinking of the entrepreneurs that might be listening to this. Mm-hmm. There are some challenges with, you know, um, how much do we charge? How do we pay? You know, all these sorts of things. What, you know, when you think of like just pure entrepreneurship, what what are lessons you've learned there? The The business piece was less of a challenge for me because one of the big things that I learned in moving the needle on moving the culture around mental health was that people needed to trust in us because a lot of public systems were changing. Like they were offering one program this year and then maybe like there'd be a shift in government and the program wouldn't be there anymore. There was no trust that whatever they could access was going to stay. So I learned how valuable that was. Thus, it was not an option to make a a business decision that would compromise our programming because I felt so accountable to our clients that mm-hmm. I always aired on the side of caution, like on that side, that if we were not profitable, we had nothing. We literally had nothing. Our counseling practice was funding all of our free and low cost programs. So with that core value at the forefront, it was, it was easy to, to make those decisions, I would say, on, on building the business dollars and cents, how quick we grew, it just felt like that was always on the line there. But then, of course, that's what leads to not being able to give your team everything that that they would want. Of course, everyone always wants more 
more things like as employees and, and it's a more competitive market now i think employees can pretty much ask for what they want now and it's and there's such valuable parts of the team so it's i i really want them to feel valued i want them to love coming to work i want them to feel happy to be here and appreciated etc cetera, etc cetera. so we're always building on our kind of the what what's it like to be an experience of as an associate here while also trying to balance it with not having unlimited money and having a, a core value of we're making mental health more accessible. That takes more money than another business. It's always been another expense for us that we subsidize these programs, that that's who we are. And we're not going to open a clinic without those. So that's built right into the budget. Laura, you spoke about uh, just us. Can you tell us more about that program? In 2019, when we decided to launch our uh, free drop-in program on a Friday afternoon um, as a way to build trust in the community, to let them know that there was always going to be a place that they could go. This was in response to uh, a group I was facilitating where one of our members had recently lost a friend to suicide. And we got talking about what, what, how could we prevent this? What, what would have helped this person? What, what, what did they need at the time that might've saved their lives? And that's when we landed on a trusted place to go where they wouldn't be turned away. And I thought, well, that is pretty easy. If that's what it is, we mm -hmm. will let them come in this very room. So the room that we were meeting in was the boardroom at our office on um, Waterloo street. And it was a couple weeks later that we launched the program and started coming first week, as I mentioned, no one came, yeah. then it really did pick up. And we've always continued that program. And up until last month, it was still every single Friday afternoon. Um, and now it's every day of the week that people come for free counseling. Wow. Really? We don't encourage the drop-ins. We, we really want you to book an appointment, but it's free that we're offering free counseling any day of the week, not just on Friday afternoon. So from 2019 to now, we've done almost 5,000 sessions for free or for a low cost. And this came about as a result of me booking appointments in the early days and talking to people on the phone and seeing that they would tell me their whole story. And then at the end of the call, they wouldn't have insurance or they wouldn't mm. have the ability to pay. And I would have just talked to them for half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour sometimes. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm like contributing to this system that I just left. We have to figure out a way around this. And it was at this time that I was contacted by an intern social worker who was looking to do their placement and said, do you take students, excuse me. Um, and I said, we do now. You're going to be working in this low cost program that, so we could charge just a little bit and offer the service at a reduced rate because our interns are done their university. They're just at the very end of their master's degree, um, completing their practicum hours. So she started in our, our low cost program. And then we kept getting interns. That's the thing about how this is, this is a good example of my style. This is the problem. I see the solution. She starts next week and it's like, Oh wait, she's only here for four months. What are we going to do after that? But it's like, I don't care. Well, we're going to figure it out. We have a figure it out mentality. We drown at times in the process. And I, I've learned back to my leadership lessons is how 
how I synthesize information and the the pace at which I can process things and process change is very different than other people. So they do find that very stressful. And I find it exciting and rewarding and fulfilling. So all I see is the number of people who are now getting, you know, free and low cost counseling, but I can appreciate when I step into their shoes that it's, it's just a lot at once when we're making changes. You know, thinking about that and and the cost with counseling and that like, gosh, in many ways, it is very much a privilege for somebody to be able to have coverage to see a therapist or how many sessions it's like, okay, you're covered for six sessions. Well, then what? Like (laughs) we're unraveling 40 years worth of stuff here or whatever else. And that, uh, yeah, that it can be insurance that then dictates like how much support somebody needs. So that's really phenomenal that you are offering, offering those services and in how good it feels to be able to give back and to just be able to support one another and, and just how valuable our time and skill sets are that it, you know, like you said about like the suicide that it literally can and does save people's lives. I became really passionate about accessibility for everyone, like fairness, that you know, we're working on the advocacy piece of the stigma where we're getting people to call and then we're saying, oh, I'm sorry, like we don't have a program for you. And I could not do that. Like we do not turn anyone away, even if we don't have any like strict red tape where if you have insurance, you you can't come in our low cost program. If your insurance is only $300 a year, that's not going to get you far. You can go in the low cost program. We take a sustainable, common sense approach to what program we put people in. And so, yeah, there's literally, we never have to turn anyone away now the way that it's been designed. And it's really a win-win for these interns who get to see that they don't need to lose their soul and their spirit and everything that they wanted. I really wanted to offer this experience that was not what happened to me where I was super passionate and energetic to go out there and make all this change and see that I actually couldn't. And I never, I didn't want that for anyone. So our interns get a very unique approach to, to start. Like, it's like we get to help influence what they believe is possible. And I think that's the biggest thing is just believing that you can make this change. Yeah. One of the things you've done really well with your team is um, good marketing, you know, good at getting messaging out, sharing, you know, like I get, I get this newsletter about just us, which I think creates demand, right? Because the the needs out there, you know, you you got all these options for people is awesome. So how do people learn more about you that are listening to this um, and just want to learn more about, you know, what you're doing in your approach to mental health? I didn't really finish the the conversation on just us. I got a little sidetracked. But as of last October, we formalized the low cost and free programs into a not-for-profit charitable organization so that we could seek funding beyond the practice because we had really hit a wall. We grew to five interns. We were giving our entire uh, lower level of the building and still had more demand than we could self-fund. And anytime we had approached anyone for any sort of external like grants or anything like that, it was like, oh, but you're a for-profit business, so you don't qualify. And I would say, sure, we are a for-profit business, but we have this nonprofit arm and can we can we get support for this? So we formalized it into that. And then now everything is separate through that. And so that's called Just Us. 
We All Struggle Inc. And it's just us, inc.ca is where people can find more information um, about services, about how to donate, how to get involved if you want. Um, and then the services that we offer as the practice is um, lauragation.com. And we are on socials under both different names now. Uh, that was a shift in itself, moving to totally separating everything. But we have a wonderful board of directors now. And um, we're currently hiring for several positions for Just Us, which is mind-blowing to me. We actually have money and no people to work now <laughs> versus we had wow. a, a lot of staff, but we had no money to pay them. So we're, we're hiring. Wow. We're growing. The, the nonprofit is going so well. I'm so proud of it. And just seeing like so many people come together at so many different levels. So many businesses have supported us, um, community agencies and government. What kind of staff are you looking for? Use, use, use the Boiling Point platform right now as your. <laughs> so we're looking for an executive director and we're looking for a, a community development lead someone to supervise the interns and liaise with the schools. We work with various universities at doing advocacy work in the community, doing presentations. Um, and the executive director is really running the whole organization, kind of picking the ball up where I'm going to hopefully set it down soon and have someone else deal with the direct interactions. I'm still going to be involved, but just someone to really like, let's see, let's take it to the next level and see what happens. I'm assuming you've talked to university students what are the kind of messages you want to give people that are getting into your line of work at school? You talk about the interns, but what, what are, what's kind of the most important message to get across? I would say believe in your ability to make change if that's what you're passionate about. Not everyone is passionate about that. And, and we certainly need people to do the frontline, even reactive work. But if you do want to make change and you do have that desire within you that you can utilize that for good and it's possible. I've just spoken to so many people who are, who really just, they don't believe it because they haven't seen it. And I always feel like, well, did you hear of what we've done? Like it's possible. We're showing you it's possible right now. Just like believing in your ability to live in your passion. It's certainly not easy. But it's possible and you're, you're like making change for the next generation. I think that's what really fuels me is making that, that larger change. I'm not only sharing this because I believe it philosophically, I'm actually doing it. So I, I think that, that's a really powerful message. So at the end, we do takeaways. And uh, I'm going to ask Emily what her takeaway is from uh, our conversation with Laura, the parts of it that you are involved in, <laughs> your power issue. You know, I think to kind of piggyback on what you said, Laura, about that, like believing the, believing like that things are possible and, you know, around like you showing that, like you model it, like you are doing it. And the importance of then putting out there what it is that for all three of us, for, for what it is that we are doing, because that is like, that's, that's the proof right there that these things are possible. And, and, um, and yeah, in sharing that, it then shows other people um, that they can kind of tackle those, those bigger things that from, from kind of bigger areas as well. And also just around the, that, um, 
you know, just reminding myself of the importance of just giving our time and giving the the skill sets that we have and that we all have the ability to contribute something back into society. And so for you, for you having that program and, and that it's like, you know, yes, like you have a, a job and people have you know, you have salaries to pay and all of that kind of stuff. Yet the importance in just providing that little bit of extra so that ultimately everyone can just have access to to services. So yeah, for sure. I, I would just I live your passion, big takeaway, you know. So and I, I really like like from an entrepreneurial perspective, Laura, like how you you see something and you say, well, why can't we fix that? Why can't we do something different here? I just, I, I admire that quality in people about, because it's so easy to say, ah, you know, it'll never work or whatever, but, but, yeah. um, you know, even just how you started, like just us kind of started or this, this free support started, uh, you know, there's a demand, an intern comes in. I think a lot, like a lot of times people think you have to have it all planned out and mapped out. And sometimes you just got to go for it. You just kind of got to respond to what you're hearing and seeing. And uh, you're doing that in spades. So thank you for joining us today and sharing your story. Yes, big shout out to people that are a, a potential next executive director. Hopefully we'll hear this and go, ah, that's my job. And we'll get an application for that. Laura, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, sharing all the wonderful things you are doing with all of our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. Follow or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or visit boilingpointpodcast.com for more. Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth.